The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this Queen Pen's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, drug abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was 1984, another sunny day in Los Angeles. Thelma Wright walked through the door of the Beverly Hills Post Office and ran right into a long line of businesswomen, tapping their designer heels. This would be a long wait. Behind the counter up ahead, she saw her package. A plain cardboard box with a small tear in the side. Poking out were the corners of a thick stack of hundred-dollar bills. There was $80,000 in cash in that box. Thelma had been waiting for it for weeks. She was starting to think her heroin dealers in Philly had made off with the money, or worse, it had been seized by the FBI. Instead, it had just been held up at the post office. Now, Thelma just had to grab it before anyone noticed the drug money spilling out of the box. Finally, Thelma made it to the front of the line. She smiled sweetly, gave her name, and told the employee there there must have been a mailbox mix-up. She saw her package right over there on the counter. The employee went over to the box. Thelma held her breath as he picked it up, his fingers nearly touching the cash spilling out. But he didn't look twice as he set it down in front of Thelma. Thelma pushed the bills back into the box, rushed out of the post office, and got into her convertible. She was safe, at least for now. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on Thelma Wright, one of America's most successful drug queen pins. When her husband Jackie was killed in 1986, she stepped in and took over his bi-coastal drug empire. This week, we'll look at the expansion of Thelma's business and the close calls that led her to do what few queen pins or king pins are capable of, get out of the game for good. 
You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's get back to the life of Thelma Wright. It was August 1986, just days after Thelma Wright's 30th birthday. She stood in front of the mirror, brushed the lint off the shoulder pads of her black dress, wiped her tears, and put on a fresh coat of mascara. It was time to face the world. She walked outside onto the cold, damp grass of the cemetery that would be the final resting place of her husband, Jackie Wright. It had only been days since he had been killed, shot to death in a senseless feud with a drug dealer who owed him money. Thelma grabbed her four-year-old son's hand and led him over to place roses in front of the gravestone. The unassuming little cemetery plot was surrounded by people. Jackie's friends, dealers, former gang brothers. He had been a legend on the streets of Philadelphia. But now he was proof that anything could happen in this line of work. No one is safe no matter how powerful. Thelma threw the first handful of dirt down onto Jackie's coffin. She tried not to cry as she watched the coffin be lowered into the ground. She had to be strong for her son, Jakim. She had to find a way forward. After the funeral, Thelma went back to the home she'd once shared with Jackie and started packing up their things. Throughout their nine years together, Jackie had shot her, abused her, cheated on her and left her alone to raise their baby boy. For the past few months, they'd been separated, living on opposite sides of the country. But in this house, the good memories still hung in the air. As Thelma packed, she heard a knock on the door. It was a man Thelma recognized, an old drug dealer who had worked for Jackie for years. He was standing on the porch holding a bag. He handed it over to Thelma. It was entirely filled with cash drug profits. It should have been Jackie's, and now it was Thelma's. The dealer told Thelma there were a lot of people counting on her. He asked her what was next. Thelma had no idea what was next. She knew Jackie had run a heroin empire in Philadelphia and Los Angeles, and she'd seen the ins and outs of his operation, but she wasn't really in the game herself. But she could be. She'd seen how lucrative Jackie's business could be. She was intelligent and organized, and she'd worked in office jobs for years before she had her son. If Jackie could run a drug enterprise, so could she. Through all the years of her husband's emotional abuse, Thelma had lost some of herself. She'd lost her spunk, her power. But now, with this bag of money in her hands, she had a chance to take back control. For guidance, Thelma looked to Auntie, Jackie's heroin supplier. Auntie had been in the drug game for a long time, and she was well-connected out in L.A. Thelma had grown to trust her during her past few months on the West Coast. Auntie became Thelma's right-hand woman, guiding her through the parts of the business she hadn't already learned from watching Jackie. The first step to take care of was collecting the rest of Jackie's money. This turned out to be a very intricate process. First, Thelma went to the young woman who cut and bagged Jackie's cocaine. 
She'd been holding a chunk of money that she was supposed to bring back to Jackie. Thelma then took that lump sum of money to the bank, where Jackie had someone working for him. She was supposed to trade all the small bills in for larger ones. But the bank had recently been robbed, so large bills were a no-go. Thelma had to ship the whole bundle of tens and twenties out to Auntie in California. It wasn't ideal, but it made it there without issue. Then, Auntie would prepare another shipment of heroin for the dealers over in Philadelphia, and the whole process would repeat. It was just like running any other business, but with more dangerous consequences if anything went wrong. It's not clear how Jackie's dealers reacted to Thelma taking over the business. She was inexperienced, an interloper, and on top of that, she was a woman. But most of them kept working for her anyway. They were apparently happy to be kept in business. Most of them, that is. Late at night, in the days after Jackie's murder, strange men kept calling Thelma's mother and simply saying, Thelma's next. Thelma never found out who it was. It could have been rivals threatening her because she'd stepped into Jackie's place. Or it could have been Dennis Rogers, Jackie's murderer who still hadn't been arrested. Thelma didn't stick around Philadelphia to find out. As soon as she could, she moved back to LA, traveling back and forth to Philadelphia to conduct business. Thelma and Auntie turned out to be a very successful team. Thelma had great instincts about people. She knew who to trust, and perhaps more importantly, who not to. Jackie had been killed by one of his own dealers. Thelma wasn't going to make that same mistake. She only employed dealers she knew personally and who she knew to be calm, cool, and collected. She took a hands-off approach, keeping her distance from her dealers and keeping her career a secret from everyone in her personal life. Her parents and siblings lived in Philly, but when she flew over for business, she didn't even tell them she was in town. Thelma's family knew Jackie was a drug dealer, if they asked where all her money was coming from, she would just tell them that Jackie left a bunch of cash behind when he died. That was all they needed to know. To cut down on travel time, Thelma ran most of her business through the mail. Drugs going out, money coming in. The FBI and DEA were always a threat, but the most pressing danger for Thelma was the United States Postal Service. One of her brothers worked for the Postal Service. If he ever caught on to what she was doing, it would be game over. From what Thelma heard over dinner, the mailmen took their line of work seriously. Thelma had a couple of close calls with the Postal Service. On one occasion, a package containing $80,000 in cash was accidentally sent to the Beverly Hills Post Office instead of to her own P.O. box. But she always came out on the right side of the situation. Thelma was unbelievably lucky. It helped that she was able to fly under the radar as a woman and a mother. She didn't fit the typical profile of a drug dealer. But she had skill as much as luck. Thelma was organized and careful. She liked to work, but she loved the money. Her next step was figuring out how to make even more. Before Jackie's death, Thelma had gone to a boxing match in Las Vegas where she met a man named Dan. He was a cocaine dealer from California so he and Thelma had some mutual friends in L.A. Thelma was still married at the time, so the relationship was never romantic. 
But they exchanged numbers and stayed friends. Dan called Thelma to talk one day in late 1986, a few months after Jackie died. And that's when the idea hit her. Jackie had only dealt heroin, but the cocaine market was booming in the mid-80s, and Thelma saw the potential in diversifying. She asked Dan if he'd be interested in becoming her cocaine supplier. Up until 1982, Miami, Florida had been the headquarters for cocaine smuggling. But after a federal task force was set up in Miami, Thelma's home base of Los Angeles became the new center for smuggling due to its close proximity to Mexico. And once that reputation caught on, law enforcement shifted their focus again. In the spring of 1986, half a billion dollars worth of cocaine was confiscated in California's largest drug bust ever. But even though the business was dangerous, it was lucrative. According to a 1982 New York Times article, a dealer could buy a kilogram of cocaine wholesale for $50,000, divide it up, and sell it for over 10 times that amount on the street. There were risks, but how could Thelma pass up that kind of reward? All she had to do was follow one simple rule. Don't get caught. Coming up, we'll explore Thelma's break into the world of cocaine dealing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. After Thelma Wright's husband died in August 1986, she took up the mantle of his heroin empire. Now, a few months later, she decided to get involved in the cocaine trade as well. Cocaine was being heavily tracked by federal agents, but it proved to be a risk worth taking. Soon after she started dealing cocaine, Thelma no longer had to worry about how she'd support her four-year-old son. She was making more money than she knew what to do with. In late 1986, Thelma decided to spend a week in Las Vegas with some of her old girlfriends from Philadelphia. They walked the strip, dined at five-star restaurants, shopped at luxury boutiques, and gambled in the casinos. The whole week, Thelma kept bumping into a group of young men she thought she recognized from Philadelphia. It was a strange coincidence that they were there. Or maybe it was fate. She met eyes with one of the men and felt butterflies in her stomach. She knew she had to introduce herself. As she'd guessed, the men were all from Philly, and they were members of a gang called the Junior Black Mafia, 
or JBM. They were the newest incarnation of the Black Mafia, the gang Thelma's husband Jackie had once belonged to. The man Thelma had been making eyes at was Aaron Jones, who went by AJ. He was the leader of the JBM. Apart from some small talk, Thelma and AJ didn't talk too much. She didn't even tell him about her own drug operation. They went their separate ways, and by the end of the week, Thelma went back to her routine life in L.A. August 1987 brought two things with it, Thelma's 31st birthday and the first anniversary of Jackie's death. Thelma had been so busy with her business and her five-year-old son, she barely had time to mourn. To help herself forget the pain, Thelma planned a black-tie birthday party for herself at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. Thelma's friends and family flew out from Philly for the big party. Some of her friends were well-connected with celebrities. The crowd was dotted with minor stars like Mike Bivens from the R&B group New Edition, and comedian Robin Harris. Thelma should have been basking in the attention, but still, all she could think about was Jackie. She tried to hold herself together. Her husband was gone, but she still had work to do. She would enter her 31st year with grace, ambition, and caution. That autumn, Thelma was in Philadelphia on business. While she was there, she met up with some friends for dinner. Just as she was sitting down for dinner, she looked over to see a familiar face, AJ, the JBM leader she'd met in Vegas a year earlier. They instantly got to chatting. Now that they actually had a chance to talk, it turned out they had a lot in common. Thelma was still attracted to him, even though they lived on opposite sides of the country. That evening's conversation blossomed into a long-distance relationship. As Thelma learned, AJ was not just a drug dealer. He was a veritable kingpin, the leader of one of the most powerful gangs in Philly. Authorities knew him as the Black John Gotti. The JBM controlled most of the cocaine trade in southwest Philadelphia, raking in between 10 and $30 million a month. Jay was a businessman, just like Thelma, and he operated with caution and diplomacy. He made deals to work together with his competitors, from minor street dealers to the city's Italian mafia. But anyone who didn't want to cooperate was eliminated by force. It's not clear whether Thelma worked with the JBM for her drug distribution, but she was certainly on good terms with the gang. Her relationship with AJ was a perfect match. In December of 1987, about four months into their relationship, Thelma invited AJ to her friend's fancy black-tie Christmas party in Philadelphia. Thelma and AJ rolled up in a limo, escorted by cars full of AJ's JBM gang members. AJ was cautious, just like Thelma. He trusted her, but his gang members wouldn't risk letting him fall into a trap. Thelma and AJ waited in the limo while the gang members searched the venue to make sure it was safe. Finally, Thelma and AJ made their grand entrance. All eyes were on them, the glamorous couple with the armada of mysterious guards. Thelma held tightly to AJ's arm, proud to have someone strong and dependable by her side again. Over the next couple of years, Thelma became fully bicoastal again, setting up home bases in both LA and Philly. She still preferred the West Coast, 
but it was worth it to spend more time with AJ. By 1989, though, the pressure was amping up in Philadelphia. The junior black mafia, and AJ specifically, were being watched by federal agents. Their murders and shootouts were making headlines, and it was only a matter of time before their luck ran out. Whether Thelma was working with the JBM or not, the attention definitely made her nervous. The closer they got to AJ, the closer they got to her. As Thelma feared, AJ was arrested on July 17, 1989. He was looking at life in prison for a slew of drug, weapons, and murder charges. That was the end of Thelma and AJ's relationship. Thelma was ready to move back to L.A. and put another doomed relationship behind her. But that wouldn't come to pass. Because of the police crackdowns, Thelma's dealers were worried about sending drugs and money through the mail. As soon as she got comfortable in her L.A. home, she had to fly back to Philadelphia to pick up her profits. Thelma had been running her business through the mail for three years now, letting her dealers do the dirty work while she basked in the sunshine thousands of miles away. But now, if she wanted to keep things running, she'd have to oversee every shipment in person. All the travel was exhausting. And it took her away from valuable time with her son. After a few months in late 1989, Thelma finally gave in and moved back to the East Coast full time. If her dealers were too scared to send the money through the mail, she would do it herself. Thelma settled down in New Jersey, where she had lived with Jackie years earlier. It was the perfect location for her. It gave her a comfortable suburban lifestyle, and it was close enough to Philly that she could commute for business deals. As before, the dealers sold the drugs and brought the money back to Thelma. But instead of flying back and forth, Thelma mailed the money out to Auntie in L.A. Auntie sent the next shipment of heroin out to Philly with anyone who would take them, or even flew over herself when necessary. It was worth the hassle. Thelma was now 33, and she'd never been so successful. Using the profits from her drug business, Thelma opened a luxury boutique clothing store called Silk Leather and You, which may or may not have been a money laundering front. She also started producing comedy shows at clubs around Philly. She never explained her motivation for doing this, but even a drug queen pin needs a good laugh every once in a while. She sent her seven-year-old son, Jakeem, to a prestigious private school. Every morning, he was escorted to kindergarten in a limousine. Even Thelma's comedy shows were taking off. By 1990, the club where she had managed her comedy acts was too small to accommodate the crowds they drew. She needed a bigger space. So she went to a club called Studio West in West Philadelphia. The club wasn't in a great part of town. It was dirty, dark, and a frequent spot for gang violence. But Thelma wasn't one to shy away from danger. She booked two of her best up-and-coming comedians to perform there as a test run. It was a bust. Barely anyone showed up. Someone in the audience even tried to steal the cash box. But something good came of the night. In the dimly lit, empty club, Thelma saw a face she recognized. Her old friend... Nairn. She'd known him since they were teenagers, but they hadn't seen each other in years. Thelma asked Nairn what he thought of the show. He agreed the turnout was pitiful, but he thought she might do better in a different club, in a different part of town. 
Naren was looking for something to fill his time, and he asked Thelma if she needed a partner in comedy management. Thelma usually preferred to do business alone, but this was an area where she knew she needed help. The two old friends became partners. Thelma and Nairn took their comedy shows to a club near the University of Pennsylvania. That was the audience they were looking for. Thelma finally began to make real, legitimate money. Meanwhile, Thelma moved her boutique, Silk, Leather, and You, to a part of town called Center City. She began having all her drug and money packages sent directly to her store. Everything had been going well for years. She wasn't worried about the postal service anymore. On July 11, 1991, 34-year-old Thelma was hanging out with Nairn and a few of her other friends, many of them JBM members. Even after AJ was arrested, she was still friendly with the rest of the gang. Her friends wanted tickets to an upcoming event called Peace in the Street. Thelma had been selling tickets, but she just ran out. She called up her ticket source, and he said he'd be going to the club Studio West later that night. Thelma agreed to meet him there. When Thelma and her friends got to the club, a concert had just ended. People were flooding out of the club into the parking lot. Thelma didn't want to go inside amidst the chaos, so she waited outside while her friends went in to find their ticket source. What Thelma didn't know was that there was another JBM member named Reggie inside the club. Earlier that night, he had gotten into an argument with a rival gang member. Now, with a bunch of JBM members rolling up at the end of the concert, it looked like Reggie had called them in for backup. The rival gang took it as a sign to get ready for a fight. As Thelma stood outside, she saw Reggie walking backward toward her, shouting threats at his rival. She knew Reggie, and she tried to ask him what was going on. But before she could get his attention, he pulled out a gun and pulled the trigger. Thelma was caught in the middle of a gang fight. She was frozen in shock. One of her friends grabbed her and pulled her down behind a dumpster. She kept her hands over her ears, trying to drown out the gunfire. She couldn't see anything, but could only imagine the worst. She imagined her friends out there being shot down. Thelma knew that shootouts happened in the gang world, but she never thought it would happen to her. Until now, she'd never seen any violence firsthand. She imagined her eight-year-old son at home with a babysitter. Thelma hoped beyond hope that she would make it home alive. She couldn't make her son an orphan. Thelma's friend got up to look out from behind the dumpster. He told her Nairn was down. Thelma turned her head to look, but she came face to face with a double-barreled shotgun. Thelma trembled. She knew not to look up into the gunman's face. If he knew she could identify him, he'd shoot her for sure. Looking down at his feet, she begged him to spare her. She closed her eyes, preparing for the inevitable. But after a moment, she opened her eyes. The shooter was gone. She heard one last gunshot ring out from around the corner. She crawled around the dumpster. Nairn was lying on the ground in a pool of blood. He was dead. Thelma stood there, shaking and screaming. Dead bodies littered the parking lot. Even when Jackie had been murdered, she hadn't seen it happen. She hadn't seen his bloody body like this. A friend grabbed her and told her she had to get in the car. 
As they drove away, Thelma watched the morbid wreckage grow distant behind her. This was the fruit her drug empire was sowing. Coming up, we'll see what made Thelma finally abandon her title as Queenpin. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now back to the story. After the shootout at Studio West in July 1991, Thelma Wright became depressed. She developed PTSD and flinched at every loud noise. She closed down her clothing boutique. She was supposed to help plan for her brother's wedding, but she couldn't leave her house. Thelma wondered how she'd gotten herself into this mess. She could have been killed that night, and her family wouldn't have even known what had happened to her. She was making a lot of money, but was it worth losing her life? For the first time, she saw with incredible clarity that this lifestyle could only end two ways, in prison or in the grave. Eventually, Jakim started to notice Thelma's depression. The eight-year-old would lie next to her in bed and ask if she was okay, but he didn't know how to fix his mother. Thelma realized she had to pull herself together for Jakim's sake. She slowly got back on her feet and back to her normal life. In the weeks after the bloodbath, Thelma's cocaine source, Dan, was arrested by federal agents. It looked like the walls were finally closing in around her. She was hesitant to keep dealing but she couldn't give up the money. Not long after that, Thelma's heroin source, Auntie, sent over a package of drugs from L.A. As usual, she addressed it to Thelma's dealer, Fats. Thelma reminded Fats that if the package didn't arrive on time, he shouldn't call the postal service about it under any circumstances. She told him this a hundred times, but now that Dan had been arrested, she didn't want anyone taking any unnecessary risks. The package didn't arrive. Fats called Thelma. She tried to calm him down and remind him not to call the post office about his missing box of heroin. But Fats was impatient. As soon as they got off the phone, he called the post office and asked them to track his package. Fats' package arrived a few days later, but it wasn't dropped off by his usual postman. Instead, it was carried right to his door by an FBI agent. Fats was arrested. Thelma had built her business around only working with people who are cool and level-headed. But now, even her most trusted dealers were getting nervous and unpredictable. Thelma kept dealing in spite of this. There was obviously trouble brewing, but nothing had pointed to her yet. She trusted Fats to keep his mouth shut. Then, in August 1991, Thelma got a call from Karen, the owner of a hair salon that was next to her now-closed clothing boutique. Karen told Thelma that some postal inspectors had stopped by, asking questions about the owner of the boutique. Thelma's worst fear was coming true. The postal service was on to her. It was only a matter of time before the FBI or DEA would come calling. Thelma had to get out of the game. She saw that now with extreme clarity. She wouldn't be waiting around to be arrested 
or killed. Thelma was about to turn 35, and she was ready to start her life over from scratch. She called Auntie and told her the news. Auntie understood. She agreed to keep in touch while she and Thelma tied up all their loose ends. But that was the last time Thelma heard from Auntie. Two weeks went by without another call. Auntie usually called her regularly, just to talk. The last time Thelma hadn't heard from someone she usually talked to was when Jackie was murdered. But Thelma didn't jump to that conclusion just yet. She hoped maybe Auntie had been arrested. That would still be bad, but better than the alternative. Thelma walked down to a public payphone on the corner. She didn't want to call Auntie from her home phone just in case she was being watched by federal agents. Auntie's niece, Ashley, answered the phone. She told Thelma that Auntie was dead. The police had found her shot, execution style, along with two of her associates. Thelma had lost her husband, her friend Nairn, and now Auntie, who was like another mother to her. All she had left was herself and her son. Any doubts she'd had about getting out of the drug game were now gone. In August 1991, after five years of running a bicoastal cocaine and heroin empire, Thelma Wright decided to throw in the towel. She had been making $400,000 per month at the height of her success. Now, she had no idea how she was going to provide for her son. But she was going to try her hand at safe, legal work. In her five years of drug dealing, Thelma was never arrested, seriously suspected, or even accused of being a criminal. The closest she'd come was a few tough encounters with the Postal Service. Her low profile allowed her to do what most kingpins and queenpins can't. Get out of the business free and alive. Thelma just walked away and left her empire to its own devices. Her heroin supplier was dead. Her cocaine supplier was in jail. Her street dealers would have to dissipate or choose someone else to take over. After leaving the drug business, she stayed living in the Philadelphia area. She started working for a nonprofit organization where she managed apartments for single mothers who were struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. It seems this work was a way to atone for her sins Thelma knew her time in the drug business had affected the lives of addicts and rival gang members the way it had affected her own friends and associates. Thelma's family, including her son, didn't know she was a drug dealer until she published her autobiography in 2011. By that time, the statute of limitations on her crimes had passed, so she couldn't be arrested for her crimes. She now travels around the United States as a motivational speaker dedicating her life to keeping young people from making her same mistakes. Usually, kingpins and queenpins in their careers as wanted criminals, their names plastered all over the nightly news. But Thelma coasted for a decade with no one suspecting she was anything other than a hard-working single mother. Perhaps the most dangerous criminals are those that operate right under our noses, We'll never know how many kingpins or queenpins have risen and fallen without ever getting caught. Thanks again for tuning into Kingpins. 
Join us next week for an all-new episode. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Kingpins, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T. If you like what you hear, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Or shoot us a message. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Stacey Milburn and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.